Father, even as we confess that Apostles' Creed, Lord, that we do indeed believe that you are God, that Jesus, in fact, is Lord, that he died and rose again, and the Holy Spirit is real. And Lord, in light of that belief, we ask that you would speak to us in the present, this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our look in book three of the Psalms. So with that in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 75. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is God's word. Be to God. You please have a seat. Well, I'm sure you've noticed that there are some psalms, if you're, if you're a student of the Bible and you like to go through and read a lot of the chapters, you come across some chapters that kind of go over your head or that you just lose focus on. Some psalms will do that. Some psalms stand out and we remember them and perhaps we can quote them. Maybe we've memorized them. They're familiar to us. For example, Psalm 23 is a familiar one. Uh, Psalm 19 is a familiar one. Psalm 73, Psalm 37, these are all Psalms, that, Psalm 51, that we would, if I asked you, many of you would probably say, oh yes, I know that one, oh yes, I know that one, but if I asked you, well, tell me about Psalm 75, you'd probably scratch your head and wonder, that is, that's just not one we often think of. It's kind of an easy one to overlook. And I think there's a reason why some Psalms are like that or some passages in Scripture are like that and some are not. And some passages speak about things uh, that were going on at a time that we just simply find a little bit distant or a little bit hard to relate to. And in those particular psalms, they don't necessarily stand out. We kind of gloss over them and move on. And there are other moments, though. There are moments when we hit something, whether it's in the circumstances of our life or it's in the, the history of, that seems to be going on in the moment, that will suddenly bring a psalm like this one into view. And I think Psalm 75 hits us a little bit like that this morning. While it might not be one in your life historically that you have looked to often, I think we're moving to a place in this country where a psalm like 75 becomes an elevated piece of Scripture that we might truly value. Because Psalm 75 speaks of justice. It speaks of a judge. I mean, let's be quite honest, how often in your life already 
Have you taken a moment to be thankful that there are judges? Probably not very many. Trying to think, when, when was I ever thankful for a judge? More often, we're probably fearful of a judge ending in our life, but we're not really thankful for a judge. Unless, unless you have faced something that was a grave injustice in your life and you sought to make those amends, perhaps you went to court over it, then you would finally find yourself in a situation where you would be thankful that there is a judge and that you're dearly hoping that he will judge with equity, unless, of course, you're on the wrong end of that. So there are moments when you become very aware of the importance and significance of a judge. I'm going to tell a brief story that I think we are at this moment, a personal one. I didn't ask my wife if I could use this story, but I don't think she'll mind. She's hiding back there. Uh, Thursday, she was driving and got sideswiped by a car. And she wasn't hurt. Nobody was hurt, thankfully. It was a very minor thing. Um, but it's a big point of injustice. And, of course, when it first happened, she didn't know if the car was damaged or not. And so she did what my fiery wife I knew would do, is she chased him down. which she said, the police officer, when she was reporting it, said, that was probably not a good thing to do. That's probably a dangerous thing. But uh, you know my wife. You know she would do that. She's, she's a fire one. But she chased him down to try to find out, you know, the information, to let him know. Maybe he didn't know that he had, he had swiped her to, to, to try to bring justice. And when she met him, you know, she told him, hey, excuse me, sir, I'm not sure that you were aware that you hit me. And by his response, it seemed aware that, yes, he did. And uh, he just got angry and turned the accusation back on her and said it was all her fault, and then walked off and wouldn't give her any information. And she called and told me about that, and, well, that gets my blood pressure up a little bit, you know, as you might imagine, and hers is already up, and, and uh, we're like, well, what can we do about it? Well, you know, we, she went to file a police report, you know, went to the police, and we're, of course, in that situation, we're eager and looking for justice. We want justice. We're suddenly aware that we really need judges. And it's very discouraging when the police officer says, well, there's really nothing we can do about it, you know, other than take your information. That's very frustrating. You realize we really don't have any justices bringing it about. Now, that's a personal example. But I would say as a whole, you know, we're entering into a time in this world historically where I think we're feeling more and more a longing for righteous judges. I mean, if you look around in our country, you see protest after protest rising up, maybe some from the right, some from the left, because there is this great awareness that we see injustice happening in the world, and we know vitally that we need justice. So Psalm like 75 is, speaks into that moment and says, while you might have a great fear that things are unraveling in the world because we don't see justice being dispensed out, or if we do, it doesn't seem to be very equitable. Or if we do, it seems to be given on a set of values that are no longer relevant to a world that desires to worship God. And it can be very unsettling. So Psalm 75, again, it's in this kind of moment that a psalm like this becomes very significant. Because it tells us, quite simply... I mean, the summary of this passage says it quite simply in verse 10. 
All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. There is this promise that all those people out there who, who committed one form of just injustice or another, like the sideswiping in the car or like some other injustice that you might think of, well, even though they may go unchecked today, there is a day. There is a day when their horns will be cut off, that those who were the victims will be lifted up. That's, in essence, the assurance. And in view of this, we are invited to give thanks. I mean, this is a song that's written for the, the congregation to be singing, a song of giving thanks. We're going to come into the presence of God as the psalm opens up and give thanks to you, for your name is near, which means your presence is near, which means we are coming together when we worship to be near our God, who's not just a compassionate God, but He is a God who serves as a judge. That's the idea. And we will recount your wondrous deeds as if these recounting of the deeds of the Lord remind us of who God is and that these injustices will not go unchecked. Now, how does he do that? As we make our way through the psalm, it's not a complicated psalm, which is wonderful. I like those <laughs> when you get to preach those. The first thing we see is he says, there is a set time for judgment. So look at verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. At the set time I appoint, I will judge with equity. Now, this short statement, we find a recurring theme in the Psalms, as well as the rest of Scripture, that God will act as judge. And the way that he says it, at a set time, that's, that's a familiar language. That's a language that you would find when the Scriptures talk about God has appointed every season. God has appointed this or that. There is this aspect of the direct action of God that is overseeing control, guaranteeing something is going to happen. So we can be certain that we're going to have fall after summer. We are certain we're going to have winter after fall and spring after winter. Maybe we don't want to have summer after spring, but we are certain that's going to happen because God has appointed, He has a set time in the year that those things will happen. Those are reflections of the fact that God appoints times for things. The book of Ecclesiastes says, I have set a time for everything under the sun. So the, the, the reference here, at the set time I appoint, that I appoint, I will judge with equity. He is saying, there is a time that was set even before I laid the foundation of the world in which a day will come when I will sit on the judgment seat and I will execute judgment. That's the whole point. And it's meant to be the sense of great comfort and reassurance. Because again, we live in a world where there is continual injustice. Continual Injustice, And it's the idea that he will judge with, with equity. We like to think, we want to think of our country as a country who judges with equity. You know, we've, our founding fathers tried to establish it with all these checks and balances so that we could have uh, a society that exercises justice in an equitable manner. But even with the checks and balances we have, there is still a disparity of justice in the world. It is simply the case that if you have a lot of money, you are in a much better position 
to get out of whatever it is you're being accused of than if you don't have any money. And that's been the nature of justice for all of time. It's why there's so many parables about, in this case, you know, what we read this morning, the unjust judge. Or why there's so many instructions about do not take a bribe or do not favor the one who is wealthy over the one who is poor, or the one who has little over the one who has much. Why are there so many instructions to do that? Because equity is not something that we're good at. We are, we are weak in our own character, in our own nature. We, we are susceptible to having needs. Needs that if you're in a place of judge can be met by the way of your judgment. In other words, you benefit yourself in some ways by the judgments that you get or you give, I should say. So we need this reminder, we need this reassurance as the people of God, there is a day, it is as certain as summer follows spring, that God has set a time for justice and He will judge with equity. Which means every wrong that has gone about in this world will be called to account. Everyone, even those that were done in the secret places behind the hidden doors, even if it's only in the mind of people. Everything that was whispered in the secrets, Jesus says, will be shouted from the rooftops. Nothing will be hidden from the righteous judge, and that day is coming. Now, as the Israelites gathered to worship, to remind themselves, to recount the deeds of the Lord, they were reflecting on that. There are moments in the Old Testament where we see God serving as judge at the appointed time. Perhaps the greatest example, the best example, is the time when the Israelites leave Egypt and go into the promised land. Why did they have to wait so long before they left Egypt? Why were they waiting some 400 years in slavery? Because God had set a time in which the, the, the people in the land of Canaan would be judged. In the, in, in, the, in the interim, He said their sin is not yet complete, with the implication that there is a time when their sin will be complete, and at that time, I will bring a sense of justice. And that is the picture, really, we have of the justice that God is going to bring. At one day, the horns of the wicked will be brought down. The people in the land of the Canaan who, who worship the, the other false gods will be brought down. And the people that have put their faith in the Lord will be raised up and delivered into the land. Those two things will always happen hand in hand. At the one time the wicked are brought down, the faithful will be lifted up. They happen together, and there is a set time. The land of Egypt, the same thing. When they left Egypt, what was God doing? If you read the beginning of the book of Exodus, you find that God was bringing down judgment upon the gods of Egypt. He's set a time for justice, and then as He sets that time for justice, it sets the people free. Those two things go together. So we're meant to have this great comfort that there is a time that God has set to judge the earth with equity. Now, in the meantime, that can be a little bit difficult when that day has not yet come and we're stuck waiting on it. You know, the, even the New Testament addresses this. It's like, don't mistake God's patience with His not caring or not being just. God desires that, as He says, all men should be saved. There is a sense of patience so that he might wait for those who belong to him to turn and trust him. Because at the same time, there is a reassurance for those of, those, for those of us who experience injustice 
that one day I would be married right. There's also a warning in that. Don't think that because your secret sins have gone unnoticed or unpunished that you will somehow escape it. Take note. Take note. God is a judge. And one day all things will come to the judgment seat. Now, again, in the interim, we think about that time. If, that's, if that is years to come or days to come, you know, we don't know when that day is. But we can be certain of this. If God has set the time that it is the right time, even though it may be hard in the waiting. It may be so difficult in the waiting that it seems like everything is falling apart. And he addresses that. Look at verse 3. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants... Because let's just be honest. When, when God is not judging those who are guilty, and they seem to be continually to getting away with it and getting away with it and getting away with it, and it seems like society is being turned upside down, when the earth is tottering and all its inhabitants, it says, it is I who keep steady its pillars. There's a sense in which while we're waiting for that day, when it seems like everything is being turned upside down, it won't teeter, it won't fall, it won't collapse, not completely, because God is holding its pillars. God is holding its pillars. So, for example, even in the great days of the judgments that we see in Scripture, so in, in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was wiped out, we, we ask, well, what about there? It seems like the pillars fell. Well, God brought down those pillars, but He provided a way out. For those who trusted Jesus, what did Jesus tell them? When you see these things happening, flee to the hills, and you will escape judgment. So the pillars may have fallen on on the corrupt city of Jerusalem and the corrupt nation of Israel, they did not tumble on the people of God because God is in control. Secondly, what do we see? We see that justice will come from God and not elsewhere. Look at verses 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And I think this is an important point. I mean, it may seem obvious to us. Well, of course, yeah, God is the judgment judge. But we need to remember that because it's so tempting to look other places for justice. I mean, we all have governments that exist, and we know that why they exist. They exist to be a check on evil, to be a punishment of wickedness. You know, as Paul talks about in Romans 13, he says, God has instituted the government to bear the sword for a reason, to be the one who executes judgment. But at the same time, we realize we can't look to our government ultimately to be the one where justice is going to come. Now, I know that, and when you do that, however, because this is the problem, when you do that, you will see moments when it's not happening, and that is going to send you spiraling into a bad place. I mean, if we look at our own system, I think the U.S. government perhaps is the, the greatest kind of government that's existed on the earth in terms of having its checks and balances and all those stuff in place. And yet still we see a great disparity of injustices going on. We see it executed very selectively in, in many ways to benefit some at the harm of others. And if your confidence or your trust is in our government to execute judgment, you are going to be in a state of fran frantic. What's the term there? You're going to be in a state of 
complete anxiety, and it will drive you crazy. He says, don't look to the east or the west, but to the Lord for justice. I mean, I think in American society, we tend to see, well, when the president is doing something we don't like, then we look to the Supreme Court to make it right. Or we look to Congress to somehow make a law to make that right. Or when the Congress is not doing their job, we expect the, the justice system to step in and to get it right. Or when the Supreme Court doesn't be ruling the way we think they ought to rule, we look at the Congress to come in and make rules to make that right. You see, we're always shifting our, our look to some other source on this earth for justice to come about. Now, there's another danger too. There's another danger to think, well, we should look beyond our government. We should look to, to new powers or new authorities. I mean, historically, when a country would go and conquer another one, especially when you go back and look at ancient Assyria and ancient Babylon, how they would continually battle with each other, with each other. The one empire would rise up to the expense of the other. And what the, the, the conquering king would always say to the people that he has conquered is, he is not their conqueror, he is their liberator. He's liberating them from the unjust uh, rulers that were ruling over them. That's how all these conquerors wanted to portray themselves to the people in hopes that they would listen and they would accept it. I mean, you look at people today, I think there is this growing expectation that perhaps we need to start looking places beyond our government to liberate us. It is interesting, I was, I was listening to uh, a speech given by uh, one of our, I think he's a senator, Robert Kennedy, and he was, he's done a lot of, in, because of his family's history, he's done a lot of investigation into the CIA, and he's talking about the CIA, you know, which under the guise of, of national security has, has, has had study after study to examine how do you, how do you infiltrate foreign uh, countries and work things in such a way that you can step in and be seen as the liberator. They've actually studied that. You know, how do you go in and you begin to sow chaos, you, you, you sow distrust and anxiety so that you've put the people in a position where they're desperately looking for a savior. And when, it present, when one presents himself, they immediately throw their faith into that. And I think there's a danger to that. We, you, know, you look at the time of the pandemic, people were looking for a savior. They're looking to elevate someone who says they have some authority, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a scientist, or whether it's you know, a member of the who or, or what, provide us with the answer. The WHO is what I meant, by the way. You know, someone come and tell us what we should do because we're in a state of chaos. The pillars of the earth seem to be crumbling. And so even as people of God, we see we are daily being tempted to look for some new place to put our trust you know, whether it's Anthony Fauci, again, whether it's the WHO, whether it's the CDC, whether it's the president or it's Congress or it's this state governor or this state governor, or some foreign power yet to rise. It's why we have this so plain in Scripture. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be pursuing justice. We shouldn't be trying to support our government. Well, certainly we should. 
We are a people who are meant to reflect the character of God. If the character of God is one of justice, we should be engaging in seeking and pursuing and trying to facilitate the execution of, of justice by the institutions that God established to do it on the earth. So we should be supporting our Congress. We should be supporting our judicial system in, in the best way that we can contribute to it finding justice. But we shouldn't put our hope in that. That's the difference. We should be working toward it, but not putting our trust in it, if that makes sense. Lastly, the last one, the wicked will drink the cup of justice. Look at verse 8 with me. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now, this is a familiar imagery. We find this repeated throughout Scripture, especially in the prophets and such, talking about the cup of God's wrath and how God is going to pour it out, and nation after nation as a whole is going to be drinking it. It's this picture of ultimate judgment. It's the picture of finality. I mean, you think about how in the ancient world it was very common to get rid of, to get rid of a ruler that you didn't like by handing him a cup of poison in his wine. So he would drink it, and as he drunk it, he would drop down dead. I mean, that's why the position of the cupbearer was so important in the ancient world. But all, while those assassinations were stuff were done in secret to bring a sense of finality, God is doing this, the judgment of God is doing this out in the open. He's saying, I am going to hand you the cup, and we know what's in the cup. This cup is filled with my wrath, and it's going to accomplish your undoing. There's other imagery that's sometimes associated with drinking from the cup of God's wrath. That's how it's going to induce all kinds of, of ill uh, experiences by the one who's drinking it, which will ultimately bring him to the point of death. There is a sense in which he's going to experience the very chaos that he himself has sown, but will ultimately come to an end. So this picture of drinking from the cup of God's, of God's wrath, as it is, is the way in which God is going to bring about justice. And it is no accident, by the way, when Jesus is on his uh, final evening before he's arrested, telling God, Lord, take this cup from me. What's he referring to? This very familiar imagery. There's the cup of God wrath. He's poured it out, and he's handing it to his son. Now that image, that fact that Jesus willingly took the cup says a couple of things to us. One, it says God wasn't kidding when he said a day is coming for judgment. How do you know? Well, he poured it out and he gave it to his own son. So don't think for a moment that justice will be averted. That is the first fruits of the ultimate justice that will be, in fact, drank. We saw it illustrated by his own son. But we also know, of course, that Jesus didn't do anything to deserve that. So he wasn't drinking it on behalf of his own guilt, but on behalf of God's people. So that when that day of judgment, of course, comes, 
God's people stand in a very different place from the rest of the nations of the wickedness of the world. So it's not as though you, as, a, as one who has put your trust in God, is not going to stand before the judgment seat. You will. I think you will stand before the judgment seat, and I think you will see the cup of God's wrath. But as those books are opened, as it were, as we read in the book of Revelation, that have an account of everything you have ever done and every thought, that's a scary thought, but it's a very real scene in the book of Revelation. There is a second book that's also there. While there is one book that has all of your deeds of your life, there's a second book that has a list of names that's called the book of life. When you read about those genealogies in the Old Testament, by the way, that's a picture of the book of life. You want your name to be in those books. And how does your name get in that book? God writes it in. And as God writes it in, He opens your eyes, He gives you faith, He grants you repentance from putting your trust in other things and putting it in in the Lord. And as he does that, when Christ drank from that cup, he was drinking the cup that would have otherwise been given to you. So when you receive that cup, there's nothing in it because it's already been drunk. Otherwise, this day that is set, appointed by God to be judged, would be the most terrifying day that we could ever imagine. But as as it is, for the people of God, they can write it in a song and sing about it in worship and not be scared out of their wits. (laughs) Because it means ultimately their deliverance. Ultimately, all the wrongs will be made right. God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth as He wipes away every tear from their eye and invites them to be part of this beautiful bride and ushered into His presence with no more injustice ever to be experienced for eternity. So we need to rejoice on a couple of things. One, that God is a just God and that He has appointed a day of justice. And secondly, that the the cup of wine of God's wrath was already drank on our behalf. In fact, when we come to that table, that's what we were reflecting on. We drink a cup that brings life because Jesus drank from a cup that brought death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for songs like this that speak in such moments that we sometimes face in life where we see graves and justices happening throughout the world, and we see people suffering in the world. And we wonder, where should we put our hope that things would one day be made right? And you have given us this assurance in the work of Jesus Christ that there is a day set for judgment. And the guarantee of that judgment is the fact that Christ himself willingly went to the cross and was crucified according to your will as a marker that there was a day coming for the just judgment of all. And in the meantime, between now and that day, there is an open invitation, Lord, for us to put our trust in You. I pray, Lord, that You would be at work in our lives to put our trust in You and that You would be work in our lives as witnesses to the rest of the world 
that would encourage and invite them also to put their trust in you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.